Hello, I'm Dr. Robert Lajita, professor of medicine at New York Medical College and clinical professor at Rutgers, the New Jersey Medical School. I write a column for the Saddle River, New Jersey magazine called Ask Dr. Bob. In this podcast, I will answer more medical questions from the interested public and on occasion give commentary. However, the matter that is at everyone's fingertips right now is coronavirus infection. And I'd like to say a few things about coronavirus infection, and this may be a very informative podcast for many of you out there. First of all, the coronavirus is a common virus. It has been around forever, eons, and it has caused innumerable upper respiratory infections over the years. It is, in fact, one of the most common causes of the common cold. It's a family of viruses, and there are different types of coronavirus that we test for in the hospital. I'm going to take you through a typical process of what happens when you wind up in your doctor's office or in the emergency room with what you believe to be COVID-19. COVID-19 is a coronavirus that we consider novel. It comes from China. And the results of probably a species swap in China, and because it in fact is related to what we think is either the boomerang bat or an animal called the pangolin, which is a form of anteater with scales that the Chinese like to eat. Not all Chinese, of course, but some Chinese. So let's talk about the coronavirus itself. Um, Basically, the coronavirus requires the proper use of personal protection equipment, and that includes eye protection. And this is really for healthcare workers, but it is important to remember now that our governor and the governor of the state of New York and of New Jersey, and soon in Connecticut, will require that there is extensive suppression of contact between all people, not just those infected, but those who are potentially infected. It is important to know that a mask should be worn by a patient who thinks he or she has coronavirus. People with such infections should have adequate PPE or personal protection devices. Now, it is of interest to note that when a person wears a cloth mask, it's really to protect him or her from touching their mouth or their face in general. But the issue here is also that the way to control this virus is to consider everything, I mean everything, as contaminated. So somebody once told me one has to think like the virus, but more importantly, the person who's potentially affected by the virus has to think personal protection. And the personal protection is critical for healthcare workers, but it is just as critical for those who are mingling in society. Now, 
when I say mingling, that's an old term right now because nobody is being asked to go out into large crowds, movie theaters, restaurants, and other events, Broadway shows, for example. Anything where there's more than 10 people is to be frowned upon. And that's logical because that will suppress the infection. The idea of suppression is really very, very important. Suppression is critical before mitigation. And suppression is to keep the infection from infecting people that are heretofore not infected. Mitigation is to take those who are infected and prevent them from infecting other people. Most hospitals now in the United States are relegating those patients who test positive and are sick to be admitted to a special floor. A special floor that would be handled by nurses and doctors who are trained and who are appropriately gowned, gloved, masked, and perhaps have a head covering and maybe even a facial shield to take care of these patients, <coughs> much as we did with the Ebola breakout back in 2013. Now, the important thing is when these patients are corralled, they are corralled because they're ill. Those who are critically ill, that is, their pulse oxygenation goes below 90, and that can be done easily by your local EMT or paramedic, they will go to the intensive care unit and possibly as they lose oxygenation may be intubated. Intubation means to place a tube in the trachea and attach to a respirator machine. That machine will breathe for the patient and under a certain amount of pressure will force oxygen into the lungs of the patient and hopefully into the bloodstream. <clears throat> now there are drugs that we can give to such sick patients. But before I get to the super sick patients, I'm still talking about those who prove positive. Those who prove positive and are stable and recover can be discharged from the hospital. Those who prove positive and have no symptoms and are clinically well don't even ever have to go to the hospital or to their doctor's office. Those who are suspect but are sick need to be hospitalized. And then as they become positive, are to be transferred to the isolation floors. So it's a very clear process. The process is one where a person who is sick and does not know he or she has the virus can be admitted to the hospital with the idea that they will be tested and the test results will come back in a short while. Now let's go to testing for a minute. Testing for this virus really, when it was first described back in December and January, was cumbersome. It was a polymerase chain reaction. The sequence of the RNA of the virus had to be known. And then a particular series of probes were designated and involved in doing what we call the PCR, or polymerase chain reaction. That still happens as a confirmatory test because it is the sine qua non of tests. It is the surefire way to make sure that your test result is positive. And in fact, in this state, when we get a positive test, we have to send the patient samples to the state health department for confirmation. In some cases, the state health department may actually send it to the Communicable Disease Center or CDC for confirmation. 
But that's very, very important to understand. Now, it's interesting that this virus, besides having a strand of RNA within it, has a crown covering, and hence its name, coronavirus. This crown covering has little processes that stick out from it, and it's made of protein. This is the so-called capsid, the protein capsid of the virus. That protein can cause an immune system to recognize it as foreign. Hopefully, it will be recognized as foreign since it is novel and there is very little relationship to that capsid of the novel virus to the old coronavirus capsids, which you've been exposed to through your life, where you've gotten upper respiratory infections like the cold, etc., that family of coronaviruses does share identity or antigens, but the immune system is shrewd enough so that it can recognize the nucleocapsid, and it'll produce antibody. And that antibody, that serologically positive patient, as we call them, would be utilized to actually identify somebody who's been infected. And that's the serologic test based on antibody determination. That can be done quickly, and that's probably the basis for now the what we call point-of-service testing. Point-of-service means that if the patient comes to the emergency room, a sample of blood can be taken to test for the antibody, and that can be returned within 45 minutes. That's called an enzyme immunoassay. That immunoassay is easy to do. We do it on thousands of other things and we can do it on the novel coronavirus if we have the appropriate testing materials, which would be specific antibodies against the antibodies that the patient has. If we can prove that the patient has antibodies to the virus, the novel coronavirus, the COVID-19, then we have a positive hit. Now, once that patient's deemed positive serologically, they can then have swabs taken from their throat their nasopharynx, which is behind the nose, and that can be sent for confirmation to the state health laboratory or the CDC. So you see, once the test is streamlined, so instead of taking five days to get a result back, which is pretty long time for a patient in a hospital bed, if the test can come back within 45 minutes, <clears throat> then you've got something really substantial. Now, You've heard on television and on the radio that the more people that are tested, the lower the mortality or the death rate's going to be. And if there's 1,000 people and 20 people die, that's considered a fairly high number. But if there's 100,000 people and 40 people die, the mortality is quite low. And I suspect that the morbidity or the side effects of this infection are worse than the mortality right now insofar as people do die from this and in some countries very, very severely uh, affected patients die in large numbers such as in Italy and in Spain now. But it is likely that in our country <clears throat> the death rate will be kept at a minimum. However, that's not the same case for the people who are going to be hospitalized, and that's the big concern. If we have many, many people that require hospitalization and treatment in the hospital, we always worry that we may not have enough beds 
for these patients. So that's another issue. Now, the treatment of such patients, as I mentioned, those who are critically ill can be intubated and treated with some heavy-duty therapy. Um, in fact, we have protocols we have devised, this is nationally, for those with non-severe versus those with severe. Those who are suspected of having COVID-19, and that could be anybody, there's now data out of France, which I just received this afternoon from a French group at the, um, the Mediterranean Infection Bureau in Marseille, and in, uh, there's actually quite a number of author affiliations throughout all of France here, and it describes the use of hydroxychloroquine or plaquenil and azithromycin as a treatment for COVID-19. And these are, this treatment is for patients who are sick, and it's being used also for patients who are in the intensive care unit. <clears throat> now, a little bit about this. The hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine effect. I have been studying hydroxychloroquine for many, many years because I use it in patients that have severe rheumatic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, Sjogren syndrome, and antiphospholipid syndrome. And I have often said the way the drug works, which we know from basic biology, is it inhibits microtubular function, lowers cholesterol, is a mild immunosuppressant, and is a mild anticoagulant. That means it decreases the clotting of blood. But the real action here may be the microtubular effect. And that may be a mechanism whereby the virus gets into the alveolar cell, which is the cell that lines the sac of the lung that allows for air exchange from the air to your bloodstream. Oxygen goes through, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, sorry, carbon dioxide is excreted and you breathe that out while you take in oxygen. This virus inhibits the alveolar cell from having this oxygen exchange. It causes all hell breaking loose in the lung because it blocks the entry of oxygen to the alveolus cell and into the bloodstream. Now, I should say there are receptors for this virus. We call them ACE2 receptors on the cheeks, the tongue, the nose, the nares of the nose, the nasopharynx, and the eyes. And there's also receptors on the lung surface, and there's receptors on the heart for COVID-19. And so that is a problem because that can cause trouble. And so the zithromycin, which is an antibiotic and not an antiviral, is taken as a prophylactic measure because after the lung is inflamed by the coronavirus, what happens is a bacterium takes hold and you get a bacterial pneumonia. The virus itself can cause inflammation and typical changes in your lung picture by, say, a CAT scan of the lung so that the doctor can get the CAT scan and see the changes in the lung, even before the tests are known to be positive. The problem there is that when a patient goes and has a CAT scan, they contaminate the whole CAT scan room, and it takes about an hour to clean the room up and disinfect it for the next patient. So you either have a dedicated CAT scan machine, 
or you are very careful with whom you CAT scan or who you do the CT scan of the lung on. Now, once you're in the unit, your chances of being very sick are over if you're over the age of 60. And if you have heart disease, that's a bad sign. And if you have lung disease, that's also bad. But heart disease is the big killer with regard to COVID-19. You can get a raging pneumonia. And in some really severe cases, you can have what I call a cytokine storm. Now, cytokines are communication molecules within the blood. They can be ticked up and your entire body fails. You have an immune reactivity to virtually every organ, and that's what kills you. So cytokine storm we want to avoid. Um, if, you, if you have chronic heart and chronic lung disease or that you're immunosuppressed, and that's another thing, live viruses are not good for people who are immunosuppressed. And what do I mean by immunosuppressed? People on chemotherapy, people who have severe alcoholism, uh, really bad diabetes, they can all be considered immunosuppressed. And if you have had cancer and you're under treatment for cancer of any kind, breast, brain, lung, kidney, you could be immunosuppressed because of your medications. Now, you, the immunosuppressed patient, should stay indoors and have no contact with anybody. You should have food brought into you by good friends or by um, public assistance, which you can contact. There are agencies that will serve you meals if you are incapable of leaving your apartment or your home. Once we identify a patient who is very, very sick and put them in the intensive care unit and intubate them, then we go through a series of drugs which are largely, which largely are consisting of antiviral agents. These are rare drugs. Some of them are experimental. You've heard of them on television. Uh, remdesivir is one such drug where we have to have an, uh, an experimental program going before we can even get that drug. Um, and uh, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and uh, azithromax are all used to overcome the overwhelming infection that can ensue as a result of COVID-19's infection. So that's patients that have non-severe, if patients have severe multi-organ failure, uh, we treat them as though we would treat anyone else with multi-organ failure, and that is giving them vasopressors to maintain their blood pressure and try to keep them alive until the acute phase of this virus goes by. This is not a good state to be in, and those are the patients who die. Now, you ask yourself, why is it that there are so many deaths in Italy and Spain? And the answer is, I don't know. But you know, the immune system is very interesting, and it varies and is affected by gender. Males tend to get sicker than females, and that has to do with the immune system. It, hasn't to do, it doesn't have to do with smoking. I've been hearing this on TV. It has nothing to do with smoking or the fact that men don't wash their hands or they're sloppy hygienically. No, it has to do with the innate immune system. Women have a better immune system than men. But what about these countries like northern Italy where 
the area of Lombardy where there's 800, 900 deaths a day. It's an extraordinary number, and one has to wonder why that is. And I must say, I'm not going to tell you that tonight. I mean, we're going to find that out over the next several weeks, but it probably relates to both genetics, perhaps the, uh, the tendency of such people to smoke cigarettes uh, in those countries and damage the alveolus of the lung, which is, as you know, vital uh, to this disease. Um, and <clears throat> I just don't quite understand why both Spain and Italy are experiencing such devastating loss. So I think I have gone into great detail to give you the latest information on COVID-19. And I will, in my next podcast, be discussing immunogenetics and probably enlarge a lot about the immune system and its function. And so with that, I will say thank you for listening. And I hope to talk to most of you again very, very soon.